welcome to episode 9 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. My name is Robert Daniels and I'm the host of this show. Giants of the Faith is the podcast where we look at individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. These are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. Hall of Famers, if you will. This episode, we're looking at the life and ministry of the great Catholic servant of the poor, Vincent de Paul. De Paul was a Frenchman, and as such, many of the names of people and places in today's episode will be horribly mispronounced by me. French isn't my first, second, third, or fourth language, though I have watched every episode of Agatha Christie's Poirot. To my listeners in France, in particular in Clichy, I apologize in advance for every mispronunciation that follows. I also want to say that this is going to be a bit of a long tale, certainly longer than most episodes of this show. It's almost movie-like in some of its twists and turns, especially at the beginning. And for much of the time, you may find yourself asking why this is worth inclusion in this podcast series. Well, stick with it, and it'll all work out in the end. Vincent de Paul was born in Puy, France, on April 24, 1581, to peasant farmer parents Jean and Bertrand de Maras de Paul. Puy was a muddy, dirty, small place. It was a group of homes on islands of sorts that rose out of the surrounding swamp. He was one of six children and grew up working on the family farm. His jobs as a child included working in the fields and tending to the animals. His family was not wealthy, and they relied on their children to work and contribute. Young Vincent early demonstrated that he had a gift for letters, reading and writing well. When he reached age 15, his father sold the family oxen to be able to send Vincent to seminary. He attended school in Dax, France, at a college associated with the Franciscans. The Franciscans are evangelizing Catholic monks who have adopted a course of poverty and who travel and preach their gospel message in towns and cities. Their idea is to emulate the poverty of Jesus and his disciples. While in school, Vincent and the other students lived in the Franciscan Abbey adjacent to the college. Vincent was from a poor family, as I said, and this embarrassed him greatly. He wrote of a visit his father paid him in Dax. As a young man, when my father took me to the city, I was ashamed of going with him and of recognizing him as my father, because he went poorly dressed and he limped. I recall on one occasion in the school where I studied, I was told my father came to see me, a poor farmer. I refused to go out and see him. It's kind of funny to think that some things never change. Teenagers in the 16th century didn't want to be seen with their parents any more than teenagers in the 21st do. After completing his studies at the college in Dax, Vincent moved on to study theology at the University of Toulouse. UT was not exactly a center of peace and tranquility. There were roaming groups of students from different areas, carrying arms and getting into fights. It was so bad that the local government had to prohibit weapons and conducted surprise search and seizures, imposed fines, and made plenty of arrests. Things were so bad, in fact, that two students were arrested and found guilty of the murder of one of the town officials. This was the backdrop against which Vincent entered into his theological studies. Vincent's father died in 1598, and left him with a small inheritance, with which Vincent would be able to pay for university. Vincent refused the inheritance, however, preferring to work and pay for his own schooling and leave the bequest for his mother. He earned his way by teaching other students. 
He opened a boarding school in Bouzay-sur-Tarn and achieved a modicum of success with it. Still, life as a simultaneous teacher and student was exhausting. DePaul regularly worked and studied from dawn to late into the evening, leaving little to no time for relaxation or leisure. DePaul's solution to being overworked was to be ordained as soon as possible. He accomplished this on September 19, 1598, by being ordained as a subdeacon, and then as a deacon three months later, on December 19th. Like many of his era, he saw the church and the priesthood as a path toward success, achievement, status. At least in his early life, that's how he saw things. If you're a Protestant like me, you may not be all too familiar with the Roman Catholic positions of subdeacon and deacon. Apparently the subdeacon is no longer in general use, so even my Catholic listeners may not be familiar. NewAdvent.org defines the subdeacon this way. The subdeaconate is the lowest of the sacred or major orders in the Latin church. It is defined as the power by which one ordained as a subdeacon may carry the chalice with wine to the altar, prepare the necessities for the Eucharist, and read the epistles before the people. So basically, the subdeacon is the low man on the totem pole in the church hierarchy. The same site gives this definition for the Catholic deacon. To the deacons, it belongs to assist the priests and to serve in all that is done in the sacraments of Christ, in baptism, to wit, in the holy chrism, in the paten and chalice, to bring the oblation to the altar and to arrange them, to lay the table of the Lord and to drape it, to carry the cross, to declaim the gospel and epistle. For as the charge is given to lectors to declaim the Old Testament, so it is given to deacons to declaim the new. To him also pertains the office of prayers and the recital of the names. It is he who gives warning to open our ears to the Lord. It is he who exhorts with his cry. It is he also who announces peace. Two years later, on September 23, 1600, DePaul was ordained as a priest. That made him only 19 years old, somewhat young for a priest in those days. In fact, the Council of Trent had set a minimum age of 24 for priestly ordination. Visit was assigned to parish in Till, but the assignment was contested. Rather than fight for the office, DePaul resigned and returned to his studies. He later wrote, If I would have known, as I know now, what the priesthood was when I accepted it, I would have preferred to dedicate myself to the work of the land before launching into such a fearsome state. He also said, Experience obliges me to warn those who ask my advice about the priesthood that they should not commit themselves to this unless they have a real vocation from God, a pure intention of pleasing the Lord by practicing the same virtues that he did and other unmistakable signs that the divine will is calling them to it. And I feel so strongly about this that if I were not already a priest, I would never become one. In 1601, Vincent moved to Rome for a short time, where he saw all the sites, the relics, and the tombs of the martyrs. He became fascinated with the Pope, Clement VIII. He had his first real religious awakening in Rome. His earlier ordination had always been a convenience rather than a calling. He returned to Toulouse, and in October 1604, DePaul received a Bachelor of Theology from UT. He obtains the patronage of the Duke of Epernon and turned his attention to obtaining a bishopric. His plans were all his own at this point in his life. 
He never once felt a calling to them or consulted God on the direction for his life. It seemed that his life was aligning with his ambitions, and the arrow was pointing up for Vincent DePaul. But that would all soon change. The next episode in DePaul's life is somewhat disputed in academic circles. I tend to see it as a real event, however, so I'm going to present it as such. There's an extensive discussion on the historicity of the event on vincentians.org, if you're interested. The details come from letters Vincent wrote, so I have no problem proceeding as if they're true. After graduation, Vincent made a brief trip to Bordeaux, and upon returning, he received an inheritance from a little old lady from Castres, worth about 300 crowns. The only problem was that a local scoundrel owed the old lady the 300 crowns, so it was kind of an inheritance in name only. Vincent set off at once to Castres to try and collect his money. He hired a horse, and he lit out. By the time he got there, the scoundrel had already left town and headed toward Marseille. Vincent wanted to follow quickly, but he didn't have any money with which to travel any further. Thinking about it, he sold the horse he'd rented and followed as quickly as possible. When he got to Marseille, he caught up with the fella and had him thrown in jail, whereupon the gentleman agreed to pay Vincent the 300 crowns he was owned. I'm always bothered by stories like this where we don't know who the lady was, why she left DePaul the inheritance, who the scoundrel was, and the like. In this case, I'm not keeping anything from you, it's just that I don't know the answers to those questions. They aren't really important, other than that they set up the next part of this incredible tale. Once he had the money, Vincent decided to return home by ship. He felt that it would be cheaper, faster, and much more comfortable than traveling by horse cross-country. He booked passage, but just three miles outside of Marseille, his ship was rammed by Tunisian pirates looking for Christian slaves. The pirates boarded the ship, and after a brief struggle, in which DePaul was wounded by an arrow, the French surrendered. I will refrain from making any French surrendering jokes. They were outnumbered and outgunned, and that's just all there is to it. The pirates took the survivors on board, except for the pilot, whom they chopped to pieces. The pirate ships turned and headed for Barbary, attacking and raiding any ships they encountered along the way. When they arrived in Tunis, the prisoners were given pants, a linen coat, and a cap, and marched around the city. This gave any potential buyers the chance to look them over, examine any wounds the slaves might have. The pirates were careful to proclaim that the prisoners were all from Spanish ships, and so avoid any trouble with the French consulate. There were treaties in place with the Turks and French to prevent this sort of thing, but the Spanish deception kept everything legal. Vincent was purchased by a fisherman, but after DePaul proved to be a horrible sailor, the fisherman sold him to an alchemist. This fellow claimed he could turn base metals into gold, could brew up all kinds of potions, and could make the Prophet Muhammad speak from the mouth of a skull that he had. Vincent's job was to keep the ovens going for the alchemist to work his magic on. The man took a liking to Vincent, and taught him the remedies for some illnesses and tried to convert him to Islam. It was then that DePaul finally sought the intervention of heaven. He was no longer in control of his own fate, and so he turned to God. Life under the metallurgist was not pleasant, of course, but neither was it harsh. That all changed when the man was called to Constantinople, and DePaul was passed on to a farmer who was originally from Nice, 
but had abandoned Christianity and become a Muslim. He took Vincent inland, where he had to work the land in the heat of North Africa. The farmer had three wives, and two of them took an interest in DePaul. One was a Christian, and the other was a Muslim. The Muslim woman liked to hear Vincent sing. He would sing the psalms and Gregorian chants for her. She was so moved by his songs that she told her husband that he was wrong to have left Christianity. He agreed, and he told Vincent of his repentance and planned to flee to France. Ten months later, the master and slave left in a small boat, crossed the Mediterranean, and made their way to Avignon. The farmer was received back into the church and placed into a monastery. Before he left, he gave Vincent about 120 crowns. Vincent found a new benefactor, Pietro de Montorio, and returned to Rome, where he acted as a servant to Montorio. He put to great use the skills he'd learned from the alchemist, having failed to become a parish priest, and then losing out on his dream of a bishopric, Montorio promised to help DePaul secure a position. Vincent wrote to Dax for copies of his decrees, but failed to receive the signed copies that could authenticate his pedigree. He stayed in Rome, continuing his studies, until 1609 when he was sent to Paris on some sort of secret mission from the Cardinal d'Ossat to French King Henry IV. The nature and validity of this mission are unknown, but at any rate, he did end up in Paris, and he was on the hunt for a new benefactor. Vincent took up residence in the Faubourg Saint-Germain area, where he shared a room with a low-level judge. One day, while the judge was at work, Vincent was sick and sent to an apothecary for some medicines. When the apothecary's assistant arrived, he began rummaging through the cupboards for a glass jar to leave his supplies in. He found the judge's purse containing 400 crowns and took off with it. The judge returned home and discovered his money missing. He accused Vincent of stealing the money, threw him out of the house, and opened a case against him with the local church authorities. When brought before the local cardinal, Vincent refused to throw suspicion at the apothecary's assistant and would not answer the judge's accusations other than to say, God knows the truth. Well, six years later, the thief was caught up on some other charges. While imprisoned, he was overcome with guilt and called for the judge to come see him. He confessed to the theft. That drove the judge to write and beg for Vincent's forgiveness, which DePaul happily granted. 1610 turned out to be a crucial year in the life of DePaul. Sometime in the first half of the year, Vincent became one of the chaplains to Queen Marguerite of France. She had been King Henry IV's first wife before her marriage to him was annulled. This placed Vincent in the company of the high and mighty. And on May 14th, two events took place that would shape his future. The first was that on that day, Vincent signed a contract to take possession of the Abbey of St. Leonard de Champs and its titles, responsibilities, and revenues. This was, so Vincent thought, at long last the successful position he had sought. The second was the assassination of the king just a few blocks from where Vincent was receiving his abbey. The death of the king shook him and changed the course of history for France. Also in 1610, Vincent met Cardinal Barul. The cardinal was a believer in the priesthood as a benefactor for Christendom as something that should work to bring Christian holiness to society. This was something radically different from DePaul's, and indeed many others, outlook on the priesthood. Many saw only security and political, social, and financial gain. 
Vincent would later write to the Cardinal that he was one of the holiest men I have ever known. He became one of the most important spiritual advisors in DePaul's life. DePaul became a part of the society of reformers that Barul was forming, living in and among them. He began to see the needs of others, rather than just focusing on himself, as he had previously done. In 1612, Vincent was assigned the parish at Clichy, where there were a group of about 600 souls in a mostly rural area. This was the first time in his life and career that Vincent was performing the normal duties of a priest. He ministered to the flock, he taught the catechism, he even repaired the furniture in the church. Remember that he was ordained in 1600, so this is a full 12 years later, and it's his first real priestly duties. His tenure there wasn't to last, however. The next year, his patron Barol had him assigned to the personal teacher of the de Gandhi family, a wealthy and influential family in France. I was sad to leave my small church, he wrote, but leave he did. But it was this move to teach the wealthy that opened Vincent's eyes fully to the poor and needy. While teaching the children of privilege, he was exposed to the servants and poor farmers that lived and worked in the servants' quarters in their homes. On one occasion, Vincent was called to minister to a doctor who was near death. The man confessed that, while he had been faithful earlier in his life, he had later fallen into blasphemy and debauchery. He considered suicide and had horrible thoughts while uttering prayers. He could not bring himself to trust in the goodness of God. This dismayed Vincent. He asked God to take this man's affliction and place it upon himself. Soon after, the doctor's spirit lightened and he was able to die in peace. Unfortunately for Vincent, however, this marked the entrance to a dark period in his life. Vincent found that he could not pray. He questioned his faith. He questioned whether God was there at all, whether he cared or not. His soul was dark. He eventually decided that some practical effort was needed to help him overcome this darkness. The first thing he would do would be to write down prayers and acts of faith on papers, and then pin those papers over his heart. He used these as a physical and tangible reminder, and as a tool to help him resist temptation and evil. The second thing was to just get on with doing what the Spirit kept him from doing. He prayed, he worshipped, he devoted himself to charity. Today, we might say he was doing something like, fake it till you make it. It seems to have worked out for DePaul, because he put in a request to leave the wealthy de Gandhi family, and took up a position in a small parish between Lyon and Geneva. It was here that DePaul's passion and intensity for the poor increased, and it became the prime outlet of his faith. With the help of the de Gandhi family, DePaul launched the Vincentians, a group of priests that devoted themselves to chastity, obedience, and poverty, and who ministered in rural areas. They would provide food and help meet other physical needs in their communities. Each day, these Vincentians served soup and bread to about 16,000 people. The Vincentians are still an active organization today. There's about 4,000 members in service across more than 85 countries. Remembering his own enslavement, Vincent organized the women of Paris to raise funds to free 1,200 galley slaves from North Africa and return them to Europe. They also raised money to establish hospitals for the poor and provide for people displaced and victimized by war. Eventually, this group of women became the Daughters of Charity. That's another organization that still exists. Today there are over 14,000 women involved, 
They work to bring food, clean water, and basic sanitation to the poor throughout the world. And they're also active in the fight against HIV-AIDS in Africa. In addition to his work for and among the poor, DePaul did what he could do to improve the state of the priesthood in France. Now, things were in a sorry state. Not only were many priests ignorant of the scriptures, they were often lax in their duties, engaged in criminal or immoral behaviors, and were sometimes just plain horrible people. DePaul organized retreats and was instrumental in training up the clergy of the day. He established seminaries for clerical education and was the sorely needed symbol of reform in the French Catholic Church. Now, there's a lot more to Vincent de Paul's life than I can fit into this episode. He was a giant figure in France in the 17th century, and his legacy of compassion lives on today. We can just sum up his life by saying he started out as a scoundrel, remained a scoundrel through his early life, and then eventually turned his attention to God and his kingdom in a major way. He continued ministering to the poor, uh, raising money, providing food, opening hospitals, providing spiritual comfort throughout the rest of his life. Eventually, he died on September 27, 1660 in Paris. He was canonized in 1737 and is the Catholic patron of charity. There are still many schools, universities, hospitals, and other institutions dedicated to his memory. His legacy can be admired by Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant alike. So that ends another episode of Giants of the Faith. I hope you've enjoyed it, learned a few things about a man whose name may have been familiar to you, even if his history was not. Vincent de Paul is a towering figure in the Catholic community and can be an inspiration to even non-Catholics. If you have any comments or corrections, please send them along to podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. I'd be glad to hear what you think of the show. Until next time, God bless. Thank you.